0: So our scripture reading today is taken from 2 Samuel chapter 6, and that is uh, both, uh, if you've got a Bible, uh, we've also got it projected on the screen and on your screens at home as well. Uh, Would you stand with me for the reading of God's Word? This is the Word of God. It is faithful and it is true. David again gathered all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000. And David arose and went with all the people who were with him from Baal Judah to bring up from there the Ark of God, which is called by the name of the Lord of Hosts, who sits enthroned on the cherubim. And they carried the Ark of God on a new cart and brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. And Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, were driving the new cart with the ark of God. And Ahio went before the ark. And David and all the house of Israel were making merry before the Lord with songs and lyres and harps and tambourines and castanets and cymbals. And when they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah put out his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen stumbled. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and God struck him down there because of his error, and he died there beside the ark of God. And David was angry because the Lord had burst forth against Uzzah, and that place is called Perez Uzzah to this day. And David was afraid of the Lord that day, and he said, How can the ark of the Lord come to me? So David was not willing to take the ark of the Lord into the city of David, but David took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite. And the ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite, for three months. And the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all his household. And it was told, King David, the Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him because of the ark of God. So David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. And when those who bore the ark of the Lord had gone six steps, he sacrificed an ox and a fattened animal. And David danced before the Lord with all his might, and David was wearing a linen ephod. So David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the horn. As the ark of the Lord came into the city of David, Michal, the daughter of Saul, looked out of the window and saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, and she despised him in her heart. And they brought in the ark of the Lord and set it in its place inside the tent that David had pitched for it. And David offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. And when David had finished the offering, Finished offering the burnt offerings and the peace offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord of hosts and distributed among all the people, the whole multitude of Israel, both men and women, a cake of bread, a portion of meat, and a cake of raisin to each one. Then all the people departed each to his house, and David returned to bless his household. But Michal, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet David and said, How the king of Israel has honored himself today, uncovering himself today before the eyes of his servants, female servants, as one of the vulgar fellows shamelessly uncovers himself. And David said to Michal, it was before the Lord who chose me above your father and above all his house to appoint me as prince over Israel, the people of the Lord. And I will make merry before the Lord. I will make myself yet more contemptible than this, and I will be abased in your eyes. But by the female servants of whom you have spoken, by them I shall be held in honor. And Michal, the daughter of Saul, had no child to the day of her death. The grass withers, the flowers fade, and yet the word of the Lord remains forever. You may be seated. So I pointed this out about the New Testament, many New Testament passages, but it's just as true of the Old Testament. There are some passages in Scripture that are so unexpected that go against everything that we think might be good or acceptable. They're so unexpected that if you were inventing a religion or inventing a God, you would never invent one of these stories. Sort of like when shepherds and foreign stargazers are the first people to hear about the birth of the Messiah. Or when women, uh, in a culture when women's testimony was not accepted, women are the first eyewitnesses of the resurrection of the Savior. Or the fact that The reason the women were the first witnesses is because all of the mighty followers of Jesus, all of the 12 men, 11 now, had locked themselves in a room. They were so scared. All but one of them had abandoned Jesus in his execution. This is one of those Old Testament passages, isn't it? This this must have happened... Because no one would invent a story like this in order to get you to think that God is a really nice guy. Verse 8 admits to us that David was angry. What about you? Are you angry? Can you admit that you're angry? That it seems... Odd, at the very least. The passage, chapter 6, breaks down very conveniently for us, doesn't it? There's basically three characters whose actions and attitudes in worship we could very easily outline or follow. We see uh, Uzzah, we see David, we see Michal, David's wife. Uh, But as I was working on the message, it just... Everything, basically with Uzzah, just kept overwhelming me, and I realized that I would not be able to do justice to what's going on in the first portion if I didn't split this into two uh, sermons, and so today we're just going to focus on uh, the beginning, basically verses 1 through 11, and then in two weeks we'll return and finish the chapter, I say in two weeks, because next week, uh, we will be out of town, Amy and I, and so a friend of ours and a friend of Hope of Christ, Gordon Duncan, will be here uh, preaching for us, and so we look forward even from far away to hearing his message, and so I encourage you to come out for that uh, day of worship as well. But let's take a look at this, but really before we even get to it, we have to... um, it might be helpful for us to remember what is the Ark of the Covenant. What is the Ark of God? Uh, it's described first in Exodus 25, and you can go and look at that. It's, that's very basically the physical description of the Ark. It's a chest, uh, a box. It's about uh, three and three-quarters feet wide, and then it's perfect square on the ends. It's two and a half feet high by two and a half feet deep. It's made of wood, but then it's overlaid with gold. And then on top of it is a solid gold lid, no wood, solid gold that fits perfectly on it. And from that one piece of gold is uh, carved or made or fashioned these two uh, angels, two cherubim, who have their wings spread out, and they're facing sort of downward and looking in toward each other at the, at the sort of down at the, the ark. And this is called this lid. The whole lid is called the mercy seat. The ark of the covenant or the ark of God was essentially, like we could refer to it as a sacramental piece of furniture. So that's kind of silly and fancy, but a sacrament, if you remember, a sacrament uh, is a sign and seal of God's covenant. Uh, so we in the New Testament church have two sacraments, uh, baptism and the Lord's Supper. So you can think of the ark as basically a sacramental piece of furniture because it, it was a sign and seal. It signified something more than just itself. It signified the very presence of of God. In fact, so much so, we're told in the beginning of this passage that it's referred to by the name of God himself, by the name of Yahweh Sabaoth, or the Lord of hosts. In Numbers 10, we read that when, when they would move, when they would break camp as they were moving from uh, From the wilderness to the promised land, every time they would break camp and the Ark of the Covenant was picked up and moved, uh, Moses would pray, arise, O Lord, and let your enemies be scattered. And then every time it was put down for the night and the tents were reassembled and, and they were resting, every time the Ark stopped moving, Moses would pray, return, O Lord, the myriad or protector of Israel. The the Ark of the Covenant uh, signified God's reign. David refers to it as God's footstool. You know, not like an Ottoman, but kings on thrones would have footstools so that they would have their feet raised. The the Ark of the Covenant was the footstool of the Lord. It, It represented His rule, His reign, His kingship. The Ark of the Covenant also signified God's mercy. As I said before, the the lid is called the mercy seat of God. Inside the ark was a a golden jar of manna reminding God's people how he mercifully fed them in the wilderness. Once a year, on the Day of Atonement, the high priest would bring the blood of the sacrifice and sprinkle the ark with the blood of the sacrifice, indicating the mercy of God for the forgiveness of sins. Also, we learn later on that inside the ark was the staff of the first high priest of Israel, the staff of Aaron, a staff which at one point God caused to bud with almond buds, this dead stick. And so that staff was kept in the ark. It was a a sign of God's mercy. It also signified God's word. The Ark of the Covenant signified God's Word. It contained inside it was the tablet of the Ten Commandments, God's Word spoken to Moses on behalf of his people. It was also the very place where God would come and speak to Moses. God would come to the mercy seat and he would communicate with Moses. So it was a sign, it signified God's reign, it signified God's mercy, and it signified God's word. And so it's no wonder that David wanted the Ark in the new royal city. Now, you have to go back and either read the beginning of 1 Samuel or listen to some of the sermons from the beginning of 1 Samuel to even learn why is the Ark somewhere in in this obscure town anyway. And that's because the people had treated it like it was some kind of magical icon, and so they took it into battle, thinking that if we took the ark into battle, then nobody could defeat us, and then the the ark was stolen by the Philistines. And that's a somewhat humorous account of what happens to the Philistines when they try to take over the ark. And uh, But so the ark has been in this town ever since, well before Saul was even reigning. This ark has been in this town, and now David, now they've got this holy city, this Jerusalem, this city of David, and David wants a central, not just a central place for the kingship of Israel, but a central place for the worship of Israel. And so he decides, let's get the ark, let's bring it back. And it's no wonder that he wants, he does it with so much pomp and circumstance. This is an, it's, it's a significant thing, the ark of God. It is worthy of honor. It is worthy of dignity. Uh, David summons uh, 30 units or 30,000 of his troops, plus others who come with him. And they march nine, about nine, nine and a half miles to the city from from Jerusalem. It would be like, uh, for example, so the best, not directionally, but Distance-wise, if you and I mustered 30,000 of our closest fellow uh, Staffordy, Staffordians, Staffordites, if the rest of us, if we mustered 30,000 Stafford folk and we marched today down to Fredericksburg, that's about nine miles, probably won't get a table at brunch, uh, but it would make an impact, wouldn't it? Like Fredericksburg would notice if 30,000 of us came marching across the bridge into town. And not only that, but as they head back, it's just this great eruption of worship. They are so loud, they're singing, and they have lyres and harps and tambourines and and shaky noisemakers, which technically is all that the word for castanets in Hebrew, it just is shaky noisemakers. So Castanets just sounds more worshipy, I think, to the translators. Who knows what they were, but they were loud, and they were boisterous, and they even had symbols. And David, he, I mean, he has—he holds nothing back. He has a brand new cart commissioned just for the ark, a cart that has never been used by anyone else. This is a fully tricked out cart. It has everything. It's got the hubcaps. It's got the spinners. It's got it all It is shiny and new because you can't put the Ark of the Covenant on a used cart. I mean, what on earth? These carts that are laying around at the, at the farms, they've been used to haul food or animals or worse. You're going to put the Ark on one of those? No, not our Ark. We're going to build a brand new cart just for the Ark. Everyone is excited. Everyone is singing and dancing. They are approaching Jerusalem. They pass near a threshing floor. The ground is a little bit uneven. One of the oxen stumbles a little bit. Uzzah reaches out just to make sure that the ark is secure, make sure it's safe, make sure no unexpected catastrophe interrupts this great moment of worship. Did the music stop suddenly? I mean, 30,000 people, was there just this eerie wave of silence that just passed back through the crowd? And then a second wave of murmuring. And then a third wave of just feeling sick to their stomachs. One minute, Uzzah is alive. And the next minute, he's dead. So let's try to understand Uzzah's actions and attitudes here. The Ark of the Covenant was holy. It was holy because of what it represented. I mean, after all, it's just, in one sense, it's a big, shiny, shiny, toy box. I mean, is the size of it, or a hope chest for anyone old enough to know what a hope chest is. It's just this golden box. But what makes it holy is that God makes it holy. God declares it holy. It's holy because it represents the very presence, the rule, and mercy, and word of God. The Ark of the Covenant was actually not even to be seen by any of the people of Israel but one person. It was to be kept in the Holy of Holies, in the tabernacle. It was like three levels removed from even anywhere anyone was allowed in. And only once a year, the high priest could go in on the Day of Atonement to sprinkle it with the blood of the sacrifice. When they moved the ark, it was supposed to be completely wrapped before it was even brought out. Nobody ever saw the ark. And you might be wondering, why then all the effort? Why all the detail of how to build an ark that no person ever got to see? Why does it matter if it's made of gold? Who cares? No one's ever going to see it. Why does it matter if the lid is solid gold? Who cares? No one's ever going to see it. Why does it matter the details about the angel? Because God is worthy. When it comes to doing anything that represents God or claims to be for God, He is worthy of beauty and our best efforts because He is holy. Shouldn't our worship of God be filled with with a beauty and a dignity that reflects that we recognize that God is holy, that God is worthy. You know, many of us are not fans of the 70s and 80s. And most of it's because of clothing and hair choices. Um, And we're glad that we've moved away from those fads. But one fad that Has sadly stuck around since the 70s and 80s, at least in the US, is our our elevating of the value of practical, utilitarian, pragmatic spaces. We want practical spaces including our worship spaces. We don't see very many sanctuaries in new churches. Dedicated spaces, spaces dedicated to the worship of the Almighty and to the edifying of His people. Instead, we have multi-purpose rooms, multi-use rooms, a lot like the kaffajimatoriums in the middle schools. We we may as well have a Sancta Jima Theater in our churches. We want rooms that are large enough for worship space, but we want to make sure that they're dark enough for concerts or plays, and so we don't get windows. We want to make sure that we can move everything quickly so we can have a gymnasium when we need it or a banquet or a potluck when we need it because it's just not financially practical to have such a large space that is purely dedicated to the worship of God. So if I can follow this tangent a little further. Let me just dream a little bit with you guys. I would love for hope of Christ one day to have a sanctuary where when we enter we are not confronted with pragmatism or utilitarianism or practicality, but we are confronted and overwhelmed with the holiness and worthiness of God of our worship. Now, I did leave something out about the Ark. The Ark of the Covenant was never to be touched. Not only was it not to be touched, but it was to be always carried by Levites, by a part of the, the priest tribe, the Koathite clan to be specific. There were rings in the ark that I didn't mention in the description. And through those rings, also made of gold, you would pass these poles that were overlaid with gold through those rings so that four of the Koathites could get a hold of those poles and carry the ark between the four of them. But again remembering that the ark would be wrapped and covered but it was always to be carried by the priests so no no looking no touching no cart new cart old cart didn't matter it was an inappropriate cart why well for one reason the ark of the covenant represents the covenant of God with his people It's not his covenant with the oxen. It's not his covenant with cows or donkeys. It's his covenant with his people. It is for them to bear, for them to carry. It's God's relationship with men, God's mercy to men, God's reign over men, his word to men. It doesn't matter how pretty or practical the cart was. Imagine if you went to a wedding shower or, or a wedding reception, and and the gift table is piling up, but next to the gift table are these two giant, beautifully wrapped boxes, and they're kinda, they kind of draw your attention. You're a little bit excited to see what's in them, so we're going to have to make it a shower because people don't open their gifts at receptions, do they? So it's a wedding shower, so sorry, guys, you probably don't get to see it, but here it is, these two Huge boxes and gifts are being opened, and the bride, and everyone's excited, but they're, they're really excited about what's in these two boxes. And finally, she opens them, and they are two very fancy, very shiny, very new matching coffins. And everyone's a little, a little surprised. It's, it's a little awkward. A couple people might even... Uh, Because it said on the tag who it was from, and so a couple people might even be bold enough to kind of look at the person and be like, really? You know, and at first it's like, what? Do you know how expensive coffins are? Listen, everyone dies. They're both going to die. And now they're not going to have to worry about that. I have taken that burden off of them. They won't even have to worry about it. And if they, like, if they both die at the exact same time, no one else has to worry about it. I mean, we've got. The, I mean, I don't know what the problem is. It's a very practical gift, and it costs me a lot of money. I feel like there should be more gratitude. Is it practical? Yeah, very practical. Sincere gift? Sure, probably. Appropriate? No, not appropriate not appropriate at all. A wedding shower is not the time that you come together and say, hey, one of these days you're going to die. You should remember that. Enjoy your nuptials. No, that's not, it's not appropriate. There's, it doesn't matter how practical or sincere, sincerity doesn't make it appropriate. Do you realize that we have something like the Ark of the Covenant today in New Testament, saved by grace, worship? We don't have an Ark of the Covenant. We have a meal of the Covenant. Communion is one of those things. Where the connection between God and God And the thing that points to God is so tangible that the thing that points to God is even referred to as if God were actually physically there. This is my body. This is the blood of the new covenant in my body. This is shed for many. When we're told, just like with the ark, we're told don't approach communion in such a flippant manner. You are celebrating the very presence of God and the reality that it costs the Son of God his life for that presence to be. We're warned don't come flippantly or casually. Don't come to the table where you were remembering the death of Jesus Christ for our sins while still clinging to and coddling your own unconfessed sins. Don't come to the table celebrating that God has been reconciled to us through the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, even while you're harboring resentment and bitterness and broken relationships with others. And apparently in 1 Corinthians 11, we're told some had come in such a flippant manner that they had died as a result. God is worthy of our Considering how we approach Him in worship, such disregard for holiness and worthiness of God, for sincere and true worship, is unacceptable. And I say sincere and true because sincerity is not some automatic cleansing wash that allows us to ignore God's ways of worship. Listen, was David sincere when he commissioned this new cart? I'm sure he was. Was Uzzah sincere when he reached out his hand to keep the momentum of the day moving forward? I'm sure he was. We are not to worship God with our hearts while losing our heads. John 4 says true worshipers will worship God the father in spirit and in truth now in 2 weeks we will see that heartlessness is not a better path to true worship but this is partly why i wanted to divide this chapter because both errors seem like they're alive and well and need to be addressed we must worship god with our heads According to truth, according to how God calls us to worship Him. Now you might be thinking, now Leonard, this passage isn't actually about corporate worship. I mean, this isn't Sabbath day worship. They're not in the tabernacle. This is, this is, uh, I mean, this is a sort of a special day, surely. But I mean, it's not. It's not. I mean, it's hard to claim that what we see here is now what we're supposed to do in corporate worship. But let me ask you, though, let's remember that the passage is about a central piece of corporate worship, the Ark of the Covenant. And do you think that God's attitude toward moving furniture, do you think His attitude toward corporate worship is more lax than his attitude toward moving furniture? I don't think so. See, here's what Uzzah's problem was. Uzzah thought that the dirt and mud on the ground was more offensive to God than the sin in his heart. Uzzah thought that the dirt and mud of the ground was more offensive to God than the sin in his own heart. But the dirt had never desired something more than it desired God. The dirt had never used the gift of communication and language to deceive another person or to tear them down instead of build them up. The dirt had never taken a good gift from God and deformed it into an idol of the heart. The dirt had never heard the clear command of God and decided, no, I know a better way. What do we do? How do you respond to this passage? This is where we kind of dip our toes into David's attitude and action. We see David's reaction in verse 8. David was angry. And in verse 9... David was afraid. Are you angry at God when you read this passage? For what? For being holy? For being worthy of intentional and obedient worship? For having his own demands, his desires when it comes to worship? Maybe you feel like he should just be pleased with whatever you decide to bring for worship, however you might approach him. Does God have a right to express to us what worship would please him? What worship would honor him? Well, do you approach your birthday or Christmas that way? Someone asks you, hey, what can I get you for your birthday? Do you say, oh, 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 please, please, I don't have any right to tell you what I want for my birthday. Anything you give me would be wonderful because anything you give me will be an expression of of your appreciation of me. Okay, that might be too selfish of an example because maybe you think, yeah, that should be our attitude in worship. But at least let me point out to you logically, that's a lie. Anything you give me, I'll love and accept. I'll bet you that of all the anythings in the world, I could find more anythings that you would despise or at least say, what in the world? Why did you give me this? Than you could find that would say, oh, I'm so glad you gave me that. Anything covers a lot. Anything you give me, that will be fine. Oh, really? I won't even go into the first five examples that I come up with because you'd be upset that I mentioned them to your boys. So, it's just not true. But what if we looked at marriage? Because God says that the the marriage relationship is a picture, an image of the relationship of, of God and his people. Do you approach your spouse... With an idea of saying, hey, I want to I wanna just love you sincerely, but you have no right to tell me what that looks like. I'm going to come up with it on my own. And whatever I do, it'll be such a sincere expression of love that you just have to be blown away by it. And don't bog me down with the legalism of what you think would express love to you. Oh, please. Bulletin has already told you, so I'm not going out of the way to tell you that Amy's birthday's coming up this week. If I show up Thursday, she comes home, opens the garage door, and in the garage bay is a 2021 Harley Davidson soft tail, flat black. She will not feel a sincer- an ounce of sincerity in that gift. It doesn't doesn't matter how expensive it was. It doesn't matter how big the ribbon is I put on it. If I say to her, look, honey, I have bought you a Harley Davidson. That's how much I love you. She would say, no, 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 no. That's how much you love you. How much of our expression of worship of God is like, I just want to be so sincere before God. And it's really just, I just want to be me. I just want to do me. I don't want to do anything different. Does God have a right to claim what would actually honor him in worship? What actually speaks of his worthiness? So maybe you're angry. Maybe you are just afraid like David. How can the ark of the Lord come to me? David asked. Listen, it's the right question to start with. Proverbs one seven says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but a fool despises wisdom and correction. The problem is that the, the fear David had of the Lord drove him to want nothing to do with the Lord. David was not willing, according to verse 10, David was not willing to take the ark of the Lord into the city of David. What do we do? What is the answer to all of our presumption in worship, our pride, our thinking so, so nonchalantly about coming into God's presence, so nonchalantly about our sin? Well, the answer is the cross. The cross of Jesus Christ, if we would consider it well, it is a great cure for our nonchalance toward our sin. We sing it every Good Friday in Stricken, Smitten, and Afflicted. I think it's verse 3. It starts, Ye who think of sin but lightly, nor suppose the evil great, here may view its nature rightly, here its guilt may estimate. We come to the cross and it cures us of nonchalance towards sin. Because we see the cost of our sin, the death of our Savior. But what of the fear that you feel toward God? What is the answer? And perhaps you've already guessed it. It's the cross. The cross of Jesus Christ is the answer to the fear you feel when you see your sin. You recognize your unworthiness and your first thought is, How can I come into the presence of God? In Romans 8, what shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who could be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not with him also graciously give us all things? Don't close yourself to God out of anger. Don't push God away out of fear. As Mr. Beaver told Lucy about Aslan, of course he's not safe, but he is good. He's the king. The cross reminds us of that wonderful truth that that pastor and author Jack Miller would encourage his congregation regularly with. Cheer up. You are a worse sinner than you ever dared imagine. And you are more loved than you ever dared hope. David would spend three months contemplating these truths. The holiness and goodness of God. Somewhere in there, he will be reminded that God has the final say on how we approach him, on how we worship. And David will not lose his head, but he will find his heart for worship. We don't have to wait three months, but we will have to wait two weeks. Let's pray. Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, heaven and earth are full of your glory. You, are unapproachable in your majesty and perfection and still invite us to come to you. The ark without the mercy seat is a frightening place to be to hear your word and your law without knowing your mercy. And yet we have far more than an ark that signifies your kingship, your mercy and your word. We have your Son, who is the King, who is mercy. He is the high priest. He is the Word of God incarnate. He is the final prophet. Lord Jesus, may we approach you in humility, with the dignity and beauty that you are worthy of. In your name we pray, amen.